You're listening to Sermons at FCC Moorhead, a podcast of sermons preached at First Christian Church in Moorhead, Kentucky. A congregation in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ tradition, we are a faith community seeking to live out Christ's call of hospitality and shalom. I'm Reverend Nancy Galler, minister at FCC, and each week we'll post the latest sermon preached from our pulpit. Most weeks you'll hear my voice, but from time to time you'll find guest preachers on this podcast too. Thanks for listening. The last time I led worship in person with a congregation present was on March 8th, 2020, in the church I served previously in Washington State. At that point, we had been uneasy about holding services with the COVID-19 outbreaks not far from us, and churches in the Seattle area were already canceling gatherings in consultation with the county health department. Washington State, you may remember, had the first major outbreak of cases in the United States. And by that Sunday, there had already been 19 deaths, which seemed horrifically high at the time. Soon the World Health Organization designated the crisis a pandemic and everything changed. This week I went back and I read through some of my planning emails from the last weeks of February and the first part of March. We were adapting on the fly, as many churches were. We were changing up our practices of passing the peace, and we were designing ways to have no-touch communion. And we were telling folks, pleading with folks to stay home if they were in the high-risk category. And then we were lamenting because the folks who were high-risk that we felt should have stayed home came to worship anyway. And then on March 11th, in an email sent at noon, I recommended to our elders that we suspend worship through March for three Sundays, hoping that a few weeks would allow the U.S. to flatten the curve, never imagining what the following months would hold. And now one year later, the U.S. has lost over half a million people to COVID-19. And on this past Friday alone, 1,707 people died from the disease. Along the way, we've learned much about how the disease is transmitted and how to protect ourselves and one another. We've learned to be leery of promises of quick fixes and miracle cures. We've learned to wear face masks and not fog up our glasses. We've washed our hands regularly and wiped down surfaces. We've met in open spaces. We've exchanged handshakes for elbow bumps. And we've learned to unmute our mics on Zoom. And now we're learning to wait our turn. As vaccines, which did not exist a year ago, are being distributed and administered, as of this weekend, 101.1 million doses of vaccine were administered in the United States. We're getting so close. If we can just hold on a bit longer. 
And as I think about all of the experiences of the past year, I imagine we may find ourselves experiencing some affinity with those poor folks in our Hebrew scripture reading today from the book of Numbers. The Hebrew people are out in the wilderness. God has led them out of slavery in Egypt and has handily defeated the Egyptian military. And when the people were thirsty, God provided them with water. And when they had nothing to eat, God gave them manna, that mysterious bread from heaven, which would appear on the ground every morning and a double portion for providing them over the Sabbath day. And with all of those remarkable signs of God's providence, the people were satisfied. I'm just kidding. They were complaining. They were complaining again with their usual impatient grumbling. They were speaking against Moses and God saying, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? We have no food. We have no water. And we detest this miserable food. Did you hear that? They complain that there's no food and that it tastes terrible. Perhaps it's the tediousness of manna, morning, noon, and night. And think about it, along the way they've lost two of their beloved leaders, Aaron and Miriam. The daily grind of it all is wearing them down. When will it all be over? And apparently their nonstop complaining takes its toll on God too, who in response to their latest spat of grumbling, sends poisonous snakes. Now, if you've ever spent time in the wilderness, snakes are not exactly unheard of there. The wilderness is filled with all sorts of creepy, crawly things lurking about, waiting to bite you. But for some reason, these snakes seem especially menacing to the people. And the plague of snakes drives fear into the hearts of everyone. And as folks are bitten and people fall sick and some folks die, the people come to Moses and they beg him to pray to God on their behalf to take away the serpents. Save us, they plead. And so Moses agrees and he prays to the Lord for the people. And here's the weird thing. Among all the strange bits in this ancient story, God doesn't take away the snakes. Rather, God has Moses forge a bronze snake. The Hebrew words are nearly homonyms. So it sounds like Moses makes a snaky snake. And oddly, this command is in opposition to the early prohibition God gave against creating idols in the form of anything on the earth. But just put that aside. God tells Moses to create a bronze snake, a snaky snake. And Moses sets that bronze image up on a pole. And just as God said, whoever looked at it would live which can only mean that there are still snakes out in the wilderness still biting folks. The story has perplexed rabbis and scholars throughout the generations, and the explanations abound. Philo of Alexandria, writing about the same time as Jesus, suggested that these poisonous snakes were descendants of the serpent in the garden. 
symbolizing the venomous seductions of human passions and worldly pleasures. Other scholars pointed out that it was an ironic retribution against the people. After all, snakes had been cursed to eat dust after the Garden of Eden, and the snakes had done so without complaint. But the people, the people murmur and complain because of holy manna sent from heaven. Other scholars were troubled by the magical elements to the bronze snake story, and they argue that looking at the metal snake doesn't heal the people. But in the act of looking upward, the people submitted their hearts to God and were healed. Which seems a bit of a stretch. But you know, it's hard to take your eyes off of a snake on a pole. As one writer puts it, it's a strange remedy. And it's this puzzling story Jesus chooses to reference in our gospel reading today. In the same way that Moses lifted the serpent in the desert so people could have something to see and then believe, it is necessary for the Son of Man to be lifted up and everyone who looks up to him, trusting and expectant, will gain a real life, eternal life. It's such an odd reference, one might be tempted to just gloss over it on our way to the much more beloved verse, John 3, 16. This is how much God loved the world. He gave his son, his one and only son. But before he gets to those familiar words, Jesus engages in this extensive theological discussion with the religious leader Nicodemus. And we drop into the story in the middle. In the middle of their late night discussion, here with Nicodemus, a learned religious leader, Jesus references this strange little story of Moses fashioning a bronze serpent to save the people. Look at me and live, Jesus seems to be saying. I may not be the salvation you're looking for. You may not understand how gazing at me will make a difference. But look, I will be lifted up, Jesus goes on to say, expanding the comparison. And this is the first of three statements in John's gospel of the necessity of Jesus being lifted up. It's John's version of predicting the passion of, the Jesus that we, of Jesus that we find in the other Gospels. The writer of John's Gospel is pointing us to the cross, to look at the death of Jesus on the cross and to not look away. But what does the cross, a very public method of execution, have to do with a bronze serpent hoisted up on a pole in the desert. Martin Luther, struggling with this verse, suggests there is a commonality of taking offense at both. The Hebrew people would have been offended by a bronze serpent on a stick. Most probably would have preferred cool water, perhaps a healing balm for the bite, or how about a cure for the venom and the fever? But no, Moses has them look up at a bronze statue of what they fear most. Luther argues we too find offense in a crucified Christ. We seek freedom from suffering and pain. 
only to be told our salvation is to be found in the way of Jesus, the Via Dolorosa of the cross. This is not the way we would have chosen to be saved. Banishing the snakes would have been our preference. Removing the dangers in front of us, that's what most of us would have asked for. Make our way smooth and easy, Lord. But the truth is the wilderness will always be filled with dangers. Snakes will be coiled up under the brush waiting in the shadows where we can't easily see them. God does not remove them for us. The Hebrew people are instructed to look up at the image of what frightens them. The sign of their fears, the manifestation of their travails, they are asked to look upon the thing which brought death to them in order to receive life. When our eyes fall upon Jesus hanging on the cross, suffering the fate of rebels and troublemakers, publicly executed as an enemy of empire, broken by the powers that hold sway in our world, we see a sign of humiliation and defeat. And we come face to face with the brutal ways in which we human beings destroy one another. How our lust for power exploits others. How our fears seek the vanquishing of our perceived enemies. It's only when we recognize the ways in which we are participating in those means of death that we are able to hear the good news in verse 16 in its fullness. I chose Eugene Peterson's translation, The Message, because sometimes approaching a familiar text from a slightly different perspective can help open up the meaning of that text. Peterson puts it this way, this is how much God loved the world. He gave his son, his one and only son, and this is why, so that no one need be destroyed. By believing in him, anyone can have a whole and lasting life. God didn't go to all the trouble of sending his son merely to point an accusing finger, telling the world how bad it was. He came to help, to put the world right again. For God so loved the world, this is how much God loved the world. The Greek word translated as world is cosmos. In all of its richness and fullness, God loved the world, the whole world, every last atom in it. God loves it all, even the snakes. Even the parts of it that give us pause, the bits that frighten us to our core, God loves it all without flinching. In the wilderness, with dangers and threats all around, when weariness weighs us down, God doesn't remove the struggle, but asks us to look at the source of our fears and not turn away. And when we look at the cross, not averting our eyes, but looking at it honestly, it's on the cross we see the word of God made flesh. 
What happens when the word of God dwells among us? It's on the cross we see God is fundamentally a God of love. That love is the rule in the commonwealth of God. And it's on the cross, it's on the cross we see the bitter truth about ourselves. For we see humankind's rejection of that divine love lived out in Jesus. When we look at the cross, we see the worst that the world can offer. We see all the fear, the anger, the hatred, bigotry, the greed and lust for power, the poisonous nationalism, the idolatry of self. We see it all there. And on that same cross, we see the very heart of God for the world refusing to turn away, refusing to claim glory and power, refusing to take the world by force, but rather settling in for the long haul, loving the world completely, the beautiful bits and the ugly parts too, loving us all in solidarity, desiring the fullness of life for all, rejecting no one. As more and more of us become vaccinated, there will be a great temptation to put this whole tragic year behind us, to shut the book on this chapter. Perhaps, though, rather than wishing for the snakes in our wilderness time to miraculously disappear so we can get on our way, we might spend time examining this pain we've gone through. What did this time reveal about us? What strengths did we discover that we didn't know we had? What weaknesses were laid bare for us? And where did we find healing for this time? These are questions we may ask of ourselves individually as a faith community and as a nation. And as people of faith, we learn in the crucifixion of Jesus not to look away from the pain of the world, but to see in that suffering the love of God overwhelming the pain. St. Bonaventure, a medieval Italian Franciscan monk, captures this wondrous love of God in his hymn entitled The Cross is the medicine of the world. The first verse reads, Lo, the cross is heaven's portal, in which trust the saints immortal who have conquered in the fight. This world finds the cross its healing, God's own goodness still revealing by its wonder-working might. By faith we gaze upon the cross and in its raw horror, in its unflinching honesty about the brokenness of our world, we catch a glimpse of the ever-generous heart of God for us, whose word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood, not to remove us from the world, but to restore us to restore all the cosmos, bringing healing, wholeness, 
and abundant living for all. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope you found inspiration today. To learn more about our congregation, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Until next time, be well, be kind, and always be the church where you are.